Captain Cook. A welcome to our seventh episode of Ideas and Lives. Uh, today, we're thrilled to have Dave Lerman, um, who is one of the South Bend Lermans, uh, of which I am a part. And uh, Dave um, was uh, an amazing executive named uh, uh, Executive of the Year by Mental Center News in 2004. Uh, he's been a great athlete. He's been a great leader, and um, I know him as a great mensch, so uh, leader of our family. And, and you're not biased in any way. No, I'm not biased in any way. It's very objective. And um, we have Tzvi Bodhi, um, who is a financial economist and my partner on this uh, effort. Tzvi. Okay, taking over. Uh, and... Uh... We decided that it makes sense for me to pose the questions, at least the first set of questions to Dave. Uh, Dave, I think this is maybe the third time that we have met. So I'm objective. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, you were for something like 40 years the head of the family business, an unusual family business. Uh, why don't you tell us what the business is, what industry it's in, and what your role was? Sure. Let me give you a little history of the family business. Um, um, a business my dad started uh, with a partner. Uh, it came from an offshoot of a failure uh, after World War II. Uh, my father was in his fourth attempt to run a business of his own. A fella came along with some money uh, right after World War II, and they started making toy trucks and uh, egg timers and they needed some light gauge steel and my dad had a very good friend who was a big buyer of steel and in those days there was really not enough steel to go around uh, there was uh, a crushing demand for consumer goods coming out of world war ii and uh, he had to stand in line to get steel so his friend got him a small amount of steel so he could start the business. And after um, this fantastic big company with about six or seven people in it uh, <laughs> that had to send uh, their production people across the street to use the bathroom, uh, we're making toy trucks. Um, they found that there were a lot of them being rejected. <laughs> I was six or seven years old, and so we had a lot of these reject trucks we got to play <laughs> with at our house. Uh, and at some point, uh, they realized that uh, this was not a business that was going to survive. By the way, they had this uh, very uh, 
modest name for the company, International Manufacturing Company. <laughs> um, that seemed to go with uh, their personalities. Uh, might as well think big. But anyway, uh, at some point, my father realized that uh, he needed to pay some bills and all his other attempts at business, even though he was not financially successful, he always paid his bills. This walking out under bankruptcy uh, was never part of his ideas. Um, so he uh, did some checking, tried to find somebody in the community that uh, used that type of steel and got a hold of the fellow and a guy asked him what he wanted. Dad thought he was going to have to take a hit on the steel and the guy kept offering more and more. Dad didn't know what to think and he kept his mouth shut. Finally, the guy, after doubling or tripling his own price, threatened to hang up on him and Dad made the deal. <laughs> and he immediately saw an opportunity. So he started calling around, seeing where else he could buy steel, uh, and basically created a brokerage operation. His partner supplied the money. And Dad never had a whole heck of a lot of money. Uh, and uh, my dad had another fault. He was just a very, very nice person. And uh, um, probably needed to be tougher. Uh, the other guy was not a very nice person and um, taught my dad a lot about how to be tougher. <laughs> uh, at some point, that was kind of a successful marriage as they got started and got in the brokerage business. As soon as uh, they made enough money, my father wanted to make it into an ongoing business. Um, all his kids, his partner had no kids. Dad grew up with a very loving family um, that supported each other. Uh, his father died when he was 10 years old. His mother was raising a year and a half year old daughter at the time and everybody pitched in. Was he born in, in the US? No, he was, he was born in Canada. His father and mother had emigrated from Eastern Europe. Um, and Got a job as a rabbi in uh, Sudbury, Ontario area, and uh, but eventually ended up in Rock Island, Illinois. Dad, uh, at one point, uh, was captain of his high school football team. Uh, at five foot five and about 135 pounds, um, uh, a Notre Dame scout was looking at running back on the other team. And my dad uh, made some great plays against the kid. And uh, the coach, the uh, scout said to my dad, uh, boy, you're a heck of a ball player. You really, you really anticipate well. Um, you might want to go to Notre Dame and try out. Maybe you could win a scholarship. So dad saved up enough money and in a year and went to Notre Dame uh, as a freshman in 1931, uh, by the way, the, the year Newt Rockne died, and uh, played freshman football there. 
made a couple of very good plays that embarrassed uh, the varsity when he was scribbing against them. And uh, he did a trap block on him, and he ended up in the hospital with a broken ankle, and that was the end of his football career. Uh, and he ran out of money. Uh, but he met our mother uh, at... Uh, at a Jewish holiday dinner that he was invited to uh, in South Bend. My mother came over from uh, Eastern Europe also at the age of two. And um, they started dating and obviously it uh, became a very serious relationship. Uh, if you call 10 kids <laughs> a serious relationship. <laughs> So, um, so they're transitioning from, from toys to steel. Yeah. So, um, with that background and that determination, any opportunity dad size as a way to build a business kept going in his head as they made a fair amount of money, uh, which they did, uh, uh, he bought a lift truck, he bought a, little re-square share, uh, hired a couple of guys who how to run a piece of equipment and even fix it, and uh, just continued to grow the business. In 1950, he bought five acres of land on Tucker Drive, which is where we are right now, except we've bought a bunch more land, and we have about 50-some acres out here. And uh, he built about a 12, 14,000 foot building and started a real steel service center. Um, Dave, maybe not everyone knows uh, what a service so center is. What is a service steel service center? A steel service center is uh, we're in the chain of supply, buying steel from steel mills uh, and selling it to end user manufacturers, original equipment manufacturers, and often parts makers, stamping companies, uh, fabrication companies, who may be supplying given industries. Uh, in our case, our heaviest customer base is uh, people that are in the agricultural equipment business, uh, trucks, truck trailers, construction equipment, cranes, heavy, heavy equipment, uh, because we specialize in doing some very special, unusual things with some of the thicker steels, the super high strength steels that have come out. We've always tried to get ourselves at, at uh, the leading edge of the industry as, as the industry has developed more and more sophisticated steels uh, to meet uh, the growing requirements. So, so we, we buy steel and then we, we do something to the steel in between the buying right. and so selling it. Originally, we did the real simple things. We bought sheets and sheared them into smaller pieces. In many cases, we were buying secondary steel. It had something wrong with it, like say a wavy edge, and then you shear the bad edges off and supply it to somebody that... Uh, uses it in small pieces. Um, 
over a period of time, we built, we bought used equipment and, and brought in steel in coils, like a roll of steel, and leveled it out into sheets. In some cases, supplied the sheets, or in other cases, did the second process, which would be shearing it up to a specific size for the Later on, um, we put in equipment called a slitting line. This was all under my father's direction and partnership uh, from the 1950s on through the early 60s. He bought something called a slitting line. A slitting line is where you take a coil of steel of reasonable width, like say 48 inches wide, and you run it through a you uncoil the steel, run it through a set of circular knives, and then wind the cuts up. So you could take a 48-inch coil and cut it into four 12-inch cuts that a customer may need, or one 24-inch cut, one 12-inch cut, ship it to different customers. But you buy the given thickness that the young customer wants, different chemistry the end customer wants uh, from the mills. We specify that and then we sell to the end customer and go through the process of, uh, of doing partial manufacturing on the steel. Uh, and uh, in the very early 60s, we added a, a fourth process called pickling. Uh, the steel we typically have dealt with and became experts at was called hot roll coils. That's the first step in flat room processing as the steel comes from the steel mills. And during that process of uh, rolling from a slab to a coil by the steel mills, uh, uh, a product called scale comes on top of the steel. It's kind of like sand sandy product that uh, is not helpful to the next manufacturing cycle. So you, uh, you can do this process called pickling, uh, where you put the steel through an acid bath and it absorbs the scale, leaving you with a cleaner surface. And then um, you dip it in oil to protect the surface from rusting right away. So it's called pickling and oiling. And that was a batch process that my father uh, came up with. I actually uh, copied it from another fellow he knew in the business. Um, those are the main processes we, we do to this day, although we've had some, some intermediate uh, products that, that that could be done by either our customer or fabricator, or we do for them. A lot of laser burning of parts or plasma burning of parts. It's all part of the supply cycle of buying steel from steel mills, doing various amounts of processing it and carrying it on to whoever does the fabricated parts or stamped parts that then go on to assembly by the original equipment manufacturers. 
What other, uh, who else would be your customers aside from agricultural equipment manufacturers? Automobile industry? The automobile industry uh, definitely buys a lot of steel and buys a lot of it that gets processed through custom suppliers like us. Uh, we do a little bit of that, but uh, we actually try to concentrate not in the automobile business. Uh, we try to concentrate in the heavier steels and we do something a little more special. Um, so, um, well, we have the oil goods, the uh, people that build uh, that are trying to uh, do fracking or other oil, uh, building oil wells and that sort of thing. No, we sell we sell to guys that make propane tanks. We sell to uh, uh, guys that make uh, construction equipment like scissor lifts and big hydraulic cranes. Right, but not consumer products. You're mostly no, we don't uh, sell. Product. Product. Right, we we're not, we're not, we're not an end supplier. Right, we sell mostly to through the. The supply chain, uh, uh, a lot of the big original equipment manufacturers uh, don't make a lot of their own parts anymore. Uh, and subcontract a lot of their part making uh, or sub-assembly making in some cases uh, to subcontractors. And then they do basic big guys now do design work, uh, assembly work, marketing work. Um, but they generally don't make, near, some make a, lot, a certain number of parts, but they generally don't make nearly as many parts. They used to make the whole thing themselves, a lot of these guys, like deer, ace, caterpillar. Uh, even the the big automobile guys used to do most of their own stamping work, uh, but but the industry has changed, um, and uh, it's probably more efficient today. Uh, it's not nearly as uh, big company oriented, uh, so there's a lot more smaller producers. Uh, there's also a fair amount of parts that come from overseas. But Dave, so so given what you're talking about, what what do you think the comparative advantage, first of all, of steel service centers, and then of our steel service center over uh, even the mill just sending the parts, sending the steel to the uh, people that make the parts, or um, other other types of competitors. What's the competitive um, advantage? Well, for an OEM, for an, an original equipment manufacturer, uh, it's a pretty good deal in the sense that he reduces his investment tremendously uh, in manufacturing. Um, he pays for his parts, usually slowly, 
unfortunately. So by the time he pays his suppliers for all the parts that go in there, he's made a product already and he's billing it. So his cash turnover is much quicker. He concentrates on what he thinks he's good at, which is uh, designing the product, selling the product, interacting with customers to change what's needed to be at the best product. And uh, let's those that are going to make a living at just stamping parts and becoming most efficient at just doing that and take care of the tools and dies. And, um, so breaking it up into smaller groups of people who have to make a living and what they do and do it better than the other guy could do it by himself. It's a challenge. And, um, and we're a part of that uh, process. Generally speaking, the steel mills we buy from uh, make millions of tons. Um, we happen to be a fairly big buyer of steel and we buy a million and a half tons a year out of probably 65 million tons of flat roll that's produced in this country for manufacturing. So we're a pretty big supplier, but there's always a bigger guy. Learmans know about dealing with bigger guys. <laughs> Whatever happened to the to your father's partner who was not such a nice guy? Um, well, a little part of the background of the story is all of us kids, including Bob, uh, were part of our education was working in the shop during the summers, stacking steel behind a shear, uh, doing shipping, receiving, gassing trucks, occasionally running a crane, running some of the equipment. And we got to know the working man. And I think that was a great education for all of us, guys that live from payday to payday, uh, guys that uh, uh, really worked with our hands, many of them who had very little education, um, delightful guys, lots of fun, interesting personalities. Uh, in, in our case, uh, uh, our shop was quite mixed and uh, color, creed, and everything else. Uh, so we had we had some great opportunities to, to grow and, and know people other than just in our own little group. Um, and um, we also always got lessons in business from my father who loved the business. Uh, going through so many tough times, he, he just thought this is the greatest thing in the whole world to be able to make a, a really good living and, and, and a business. Um, where you deal with professional people. Um, and be your own boss, I think. He, pardon me? Be your own boss. Yeah. And um, so um, now he, some, he, of, us, some he, of us grew up with a, an enjoyment of, of learning the business. Um, and um, in my case, I was the first one out of college got an engineering degree and then I decided I probably was going to be the greatest engineer. I was a C guy. Uh, and uh, 
So then I went and got a, a master's degree. Uh, we had a small wedding, and so there was a little money left over from the in-laws. I went to graduate school. And after that, I went to work uh, with a company called RCA, the old Radio Corporation of America, in the defensive space business. And I worked in that business for four years. Um, and... Um, in 1966, my dad came to me and said, uh, you know, we're getting along worse and worse. Uh, a couple people have tried to help me figure out how I could borrow enough money to buy the partner out. And uh, I'd like you to join me in the business. What do you think? And I looked at the deal with my expert business education and said, Dad, this is a lousy deal. <laughs> you, do, you do all the work. You know the damn business. All he does is gripe at you. You're paying him almost the value of the business. And he said, well, we're still negotiating. We're still negotiating. And then he came back and the deal actually got worse over a few more <laughs> discussions. Because this guy did know how to negotiate. He knew how bad dad wanted to, to get out from under him. And he played it to the hill. And uh, I repeated my comments to dad. And dad said, you know what, Dave? You don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> you're valuing the business as though the partner's there. Get rid of that partner. And you joined the business, and maybe a couple of your brothers joined the business. This business is worth 10 times what this thing is. So I ain't asking you anymore what you think of the deal. Are you in or are you out? And I said, okay, Dad, I'm in. And he was right. Yeah, he was right. Wow. Uh, so the end of 66, I... Uh, I joined him in the business um, and I walked in the door the first day and dad said, uh, by that time he had about, I'd say about a hundred people in the shop and maybe about 20 people in the office. And he was probably uh, selling about 3000 tons a month of steel, pretty good for a small plant in South Bend. And he said, okay, Dave, what part of the business are you want to run? Dad, 26 years old. What the hell do I know about running this? <laughs> oh, shit. You've been, you've been here all this time. You know the damn business. What part of the business you are run? I said, well, I'll run the shop. Okay, you run the shop. I'll do the buying and selling. And that's how we started. Um, and we particularly had a problem in the shop because my dad's partner, um, would rather screw somebody for a couple bucks than make it legitimate. It just seemed that way. And he took advantage of the plant guys um, to the point where um, I walked in and there was a new a union contract that had been negotiated three years before for renewal. And these guys were so mad the way they got treated over that three years, they were going to strike no matter what the heck was going on. 
And here we were borrowed up as much as we could be and looked like we were headed for a strike. There's a whole very long story behind that uh, that I won't get into, but um, uh, we did, they, did they strike? No. Um, no, they they didn't strike. Um, they backed down. We, we ended up uh, being able to get the International Union involved and we're giving them a fair price increase. And the union was looking at it uh, like getting back at the old man. And, and the international finally talked the guys into knowing you got a nice increase. Sounds to us like that guy's gone and you should have a good relationship going forward. But it took a lot of threats, and various issues, and we got through it. What uh, union was it? International Union of Electrical Workers. Uh-huh. And we still have that union here to this day. Um, and you, you have reasonable relations with them? Yeah, we have very good relationships with them. Uh, over a period of time, uh, here's a perfect example. Um, um, we have the union grievance thing most union companies have. If a foreman instructs somebody to do something and they're supposed to do it, they have to do it. And then they file a grievance because the foreman was unfair or he didn't talk right to him or whatever. And so it goes through a first step where you try to understand what really happened, then a second step where you get somebody to try to work something out. And then if you can't do that, it goes to a third step which you bring in a outside moderator to determine who's right. So over a period of time, um, we've developed enough of a relationship with uh, the union uh, where they said, you know, we don't want to pay our share of these third step guys that come in and make the rules. Um, Brother Jerry, our lawyer, Jerry's, Jerry's solid and honest, and we trust him. So we want him to be the third step determination guy. Well, he works for the company. Well, they know he'll be fair. That's so over a period of time, uh, we've developed a good relationship with our unions. Um, um, as we treat them very fair, and they know it. And uh, there's the negotiation always, the, the, uh, the new contract always gets negotiated till the last hour just before. Uh, but whatever we end up giving them, they accept because they know we're going to treat them fair. Uh, now, we went through some other challenges along the way, but it took it and it took years to get that kind of confidence built up in our people. Did you ever have a uh, prolonged strike? Yes, we did. Uh, that's, a, that's another long story if you want me to get into it. Um, well, before that, I do. But before that, how many members of the family are currently, of the, you know, the, the 10 siblings are in the business? Five of us. Six of us. I'm sorry. My sister Sally is 
is in the business also. She's a lawyer. Uh, and she's the only girl, right? Yes. One girl and nine boys. Yeah. Uh, and you're the oldest. I'm the second oldest. My oldest brother um, oh, yeah. is he going was... into a much more honorable profession. He's a, <laughs> he's a rabbi and a scholar. In Borough Park, right? In Brooklyn. Well, that's where he's been for many years, but he just moved to uh, Lakewood. Oh, New yeah. Jersey. New Jersey, right. Uh, all right. Now, the the uh, story of the strike. Let's hear it. So um, after stumbling through that first negotiation, um, three years later, we had another negotiation. And um, uh, again, last minute settled at a reasonable time, reasonable amount. The arguments were much more financial. Um, and part of the issue was in the background was South Bend was a heavy manufacturing uh, town. Uh, in those days, um, there were three major manufacturers that used a lot of steel right in this area. And they were the keys to uh, the first big amounts of steel that we were able to process through here. One was Studebaker. One was a division of Bendix that made most all the brakes for Ford cars, um, the old style brakes, drum brakes, and Whirlpool, which was a uh, manufacturer of uh, laundry equipment in, in uh, St. Joe, Michigan, which is uh, probably about 34 miles away. And so we supplied all these guys, but they were all big uh, CIO, UAW plants. And uh, those plants made a heck of a lot more money than uh, smaller companies. There was a big divide between union, giant union plants like that. And part of that was all their competitors were also union plants that had pretty close to the same wages nationally. And so the littler guys like ourselves were at a different level. Uh, I might add that uh, uh, we were much more open to take uh, those of different colors and nationalities and all that stuff. Um, and uh, truth was that in those days, uh, union plants could could be very difficult about those types of things. So um, they kept they kept the minorities out. It was was it white people only? Well, I don't know if they'll admit it or not, but I can tell you there were a lot of guys that worked for us that couldn't get jobs for a lot more money in other places. Some of it was education. Mm -hmm. um, some of it was my guess bias. Right. Um, So there was a wage gap. The, the uh, union contract that came, which would have been the third union contract that I negotiated, um, there was a bunch of young kids. 
that we'd hired. And they decided that many of their fathers who also worked here, um, and the only reason they didn't get paid those great big wages was because their fathers were just not strong enough, just accept whatever the old man wants. And they had some fire in them. Um, uh, many of them were wise ass kids. And uh, it happened to be during the wage price freeze of Nixon, where the maximum you could pay was 5%. So we were doing okay, and we were ready to pay 5%. And the kids demanded like 10 or 12% or you know something way over the top. So it was easy. That's it. And uh, the international was trying to get these guys under control because these, these young kids thought they knew everything about everything. And they were fighting and fighting. And the international came to us and said, well, why don't you just agree to pay the 10, 12%? And then it won't be allowed because 5% is max and you'll get your contract. And uh, I said, oh, no. Because that, that's a false promise, because 5% is what we can afford to pay. Anything above that is not what we can afford to pay. And if we got to have a fight, let's have it now. My dad and I both said, uh, dad used these, this language, we're not going to Studebaker ourselves out of business. Um, and if you know any of the history of Studebaker, you understand. Well, you, might, you might tell some of our listeners and watchers what that meant um studebaker just constantly agreed to the national contract of general motors and ford um, they had an older manufacturing building that we're not nearly as efficient in um, the local workforce was so spoiled that they gave they had more wash-up time they had easier rules for in the plant and they were not an efficient producer. Uh, they got by for a number of years because his, uh, Studebaker led many places in, in design. Uh, and they had a nice car, but they could never produce at the cost that the other guys could, particularly since they did not grow, couldn't grow. And uh, so eventually they got forced out of business. Um, and so we said, if we die, we die, we die with our shoes on. <laughs> and so we took them on. It was an 11 week strike. In um, about the third or fourth week, maybe it was the fifth week. Um, I was doing all the negotiating. I had a very, very good labor lawyer who was a tough, smart guy who was giving me good advice. And um, I said, okay, we're going to open up the damn plant. Bullshit. And so we started by just having all our foremen work. And I actually worked. I ran a crane in our pickle plant and uh, during the day. And then I'd go into my office at, at the end of about eight, 10 hours out in the shop and do whatever I needed to do there. And then in some cases, uh, 
get some calls about from the federal mediator. If you don't know what a federal mediator is, he's a guy that decides uh, two parties can't agree. So a federal mediator gets called in and he figures out who's the weaker of the two parties and then he pushes the weaker one to give in. So there's not a strike because a strike looks bad to the government. And that and that was that's, that's the old way. And that was still be the old way. That's the law, right? That's the labor law that you have to have mediation or no. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even remember if it was the law or not. I mean, both sides are happy to have some guy in the middle right. saying, telling, telling the other guy what he really means. So it's a good intermediary thing, but but you have to have been in the business to know that this guy is not straight down the middle. He's trying to get a contract, right? okay, right. Uh, which is a different approach than let these guys have their arguments and you just try to straighten them out. You know, yeah. he, puts, he puts a color on things. Sure. So, um, so we started doing work in house and we started building up steel that we could ship uh, in between time. We were um, still bringing some steel from the steel mills and shipping it to some, actually some of our competitors or people that could do the same thing we could do. And they would, process it for us and then we'd ship from there to a customer so we did some of that and um, um, I was probably in the sixth or seventh week I was threatening to start hiring guys non-union guys and um, I was threatening to start to ship and it must have been about the eighth week or ninth week I don't know probably the eighth week when there was a, an old time foreman, we had tough, tough black guy, smart as hell, but a street smart guy. And he, uh, he used to stutter. Uh, you remember Bo Freeman? Bo, sure. He was a tough guy. He came into my office one day and said, D -d -d Dave, uh, you know, keep talking. When you can do something other than talk. I said, you know what, Bo, you're right. You're right. So you start hiring people. Uh, the uh, union put up a picket line, went to court to get a stay. Um, and um, I remember over a weekend, uh, I found a friend of mine told me that there was a, in those days, all truck drivers were union. So they wouldn't truck, they wouldn't cross another union picket line. But there was some little independent guy that my friend said, this guy's, he's crazy. He'll do anything. You don't give a damn. Um, so you could hire him. And he'd run that first truck through and it's illegal anyway for these guys. Cause I got the stay for them to stop us. Um, and you go from there. So the guy shows up and it was actually on a Saturday morning over at our old plant too. 
and um, he brings his truck in and we load the truck and the, the union, which was had their their, uh, their most of their guys over in our main plant a block or two away here that we're going to ship over there. They rush over there and they block the street. So I call the county sheriff and I tell him, get over here. This is an illegal blockage. You got to protect us and get us through this thing. So he comes out with about four of his deputies and he starts talking well, Dave, you know, somebody could get hurt. Da, 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 da. I said, that ain't my problem. I'm not backing down. I back down now, we lose. It's easy. Get, me, get these people to let us drive a truck through. And he just starts screwing around. Um, and then I get a phone call from my father. Dave, what's going on? I said, well, Dad, you know, I'm trying to get this truck through here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hear there's all kinds of commotion and threats. And I said, yeah, it's part of the game. He said, well, Dave, maybe, maybe you should stop. I said, Dad, we ain't stopping. <laughs> he said, you're right. We ain't stopping. Okay, but do me a favor. Don't do anything for 30 minutes. I said, Okay. So what my dad did was um, he went to see the local police guys and dad was always very friendly to all local cops. Every time we had Christmas turkeys extra, dad always took them down to the police station. Every time we had some extra football tickets, he always, cause he felt these guys were awful hardworking guys and deserved it. So, he had a lot of buddies down there. And he went down there and said, we've got to stay from the court. The county guys ain't got the damn balls to take care of it. We need some help here. That's what I heard afterwards. Because about 25 minutes after his call to me, here comes about 10 police cars, South Bend City Police, and they didn't park way off someplace and come and talk to me. They went right up to the picket line and created a path. By then, this truck driver was scared out of his wits and he left, leaving his truck. Whoa. So then I had to call a guy who was in charge of our trucks. We had, I think at that time, about 15 trucks. And he had, he had been one of our truck drivers and he had a truck driver's license. And I said, come in here. We're gonna drive this truck through the picket line. And he was scared of the shadow. And I kept saying, don't worry about it. I'm the bad guy. I'm gonna get in the truck with you. If anybody's mad, they'll be mad at me. And uh, we got in that truck. We drove through the picket line. The guys were saying some nasty things. Uh, Although they didn't really say them with such hatred, because by that time I knew a lot of the guys. Um, but we sort of broke the back of, of the uh, strike. And um, we had 
the union truck drivers that we had, which were Teamsters, didn't like the other guys anyway, but they couldn't break the cricket line. So my dad, who years and years ago, one of his businesses was a trucking company and he drove his own trucks, started driving, said, I'll drive, you guys pack the truck up, I'll drive the truck through the picket line, take it over to a certain place, then our truck drivers will deliver it to a customer's. That's what we started doing. Well, the picket lines started trying to get in dad's way until they found that dad was not quite as good a truck driver as he used to be. And it was a little scary to get in the way. <laughs> so he didn't run over any of them, did he? No, he didn't run over any of them. Uh, uh, and then a little later, one of our other volunteers. Uh, who was a bit of a nutcase himself, was ready to walk through the picket line just to show him. He, was, he had been a World War II Navy fighter pilot, so he was ready. He was <laughs> he to show through the picket line. Um, and we kind of broke the strike, um, and we started hiring some folks, particularly in those days, some folks that were coming back from Vietnam and didn't worry so much about walking through a picket line. They needed a job. Um, and then I get some conciliatory things from the uh, federal mediator. Um, Dave, if you just pay them another nickel over and above whatever you're offering or a dime or whatever, I said, no, no. I'm not gonna reward them for what they've done. It's fair, it's good, you know damn well, that's it. So, then I get another call from them a few days later. They, the International is embarrassed by this thing. Um, and so, um, they wanted to give you that nickel just to get the thing settled. So, um, they're, they're going to, by then, most of the guys that worked here quit coming out to the picket lines. Mm -hmm. So they were bringing pickets in from other union situations. And um, he said, they're going to get in your way. They're bringing lots of pickets. It's going to be miserable. Um, the union, they're, they're, the international's calling for a meeting and um, they, they, they'd love to just settle this thing. Um, otherwise they're gonna ramp up all the fights. And uh, I said, we've, we've done what we've done. And by then, by the way, I'd already had some phone calls from some of our good older time uh, union guys that said, Dave, we're sorry. We let these young guys lead us by the path. Uh, we want to come back to work. And so I, uh, I said, well, guys, I think this thing's going to come to a halt. I don't think it'd be so good if you did right now. But if, if I don't get this thing worked out quickly, uh, let's do it. And so the guy calls, so the union calls for this big meeting. And um, at some point during the meeting, um, 
trying to rile everybody up. Interestingly enough, the young guys who had driven this whole damn process um, were getting sick of it because they thought it was going to be a good fight and there wasn't a fight and they lost their... And, and on top of that, most of them were living with their parents and their parents were going to throw them out for what they've done. <laughs> Um, they said, well, we want to go back to work. And the union said, this is not a meeting about going back to work. This is a meeting about what we do to, to push the company to da, 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 da. And then it became an out, uh, a, a big uprising. And everybody started yelling. They wanted a vote to go back to work. They demanded a vote to go back to work, and it must have sounded a little threatening to the union guys. So they had a vote, and the vote was to go back to work. And the union tried to stop it because they said, well, we don't even know if we have an offer on the table. So then I get a call from the union uh, business agent, and... Um, he says, Dave, you know, you know what happened? I said, yeah, I know what happened. I had 15 guys call me, jumping up and down, ready to they're coming to work right then, like 11 o'clock in the morning. And um, he said, well, what are you going to do about the contract? There's no offer on the table. I said, our offer is the same offer you could have had the first goddamn day. Just get him back here. That's all. And that was the settlement. And um, unfortunately, in in uh, management history, you don't find situations where management stood up, and you had a number of plants that became way too. Um, inefficient um, but now was that the last uh, strike you had no there was one more strike um, and it occurred many years later we had hired a plant manager um, who was a very very bright guy um, uh, he knew, he knew all the words. He had been a high-end plant manager in other places. Um, and he knew the language. And, um, but he was kind of a very aloof guy. And Allermans are not aloof. And the plant guys, the good old timers, begin to resent this. And he had been an officer in the army, in fact, he kept his uh, citations behind him in his office. Um, and uh, apparently he demanded that you kissed his ring in the shop. And the truth is that I was busy growing the company. Um, it seemed like we had such a very professional plant manager my brothers never really got too involved in the plant. And uh, he just had built so much resentment. Um, 
I just heard about it at the last minute. And I went and talked to some of my guys. Guys, what is it? Dave, I'm sorry. We're going to vote for a strike. I said, why? It's because of him. You know, I had a sick mother in Texas, and he wouldn't give me time off so I could go see her. Stuff like that. And the more I found out about it, the more I was embarrassed. But it was too late. So we settled on the, on the uh, contract, and they rejected the contract. And uh, one week later, they asked it to, uh, us to put up the contract again. We changed one little thing, um, and they voted it in. And did that plant manager stay on, or did you get rid of him? Not long. Mm -hmm. I called him in my office. And uh, I told him he was the cause of the strike and that he needed to get better relationships with the employees. Maybe I needed to send him to a Dale Carnegie class. <laughs> and his answer was over my dead body. Oh, whoa. So I went to my brothers and I said, he's gone. They all thought, what do you mean? This guy's great. No, he was the cause of the strike. Right. And shame on me. Um, and at that time, I brought a bill, my son Billy in, who had uh, gone through business school, master's, uh, and had been was running our truck fleet, which by then was about 50, 60 trucks. And uh, Billy had worked for the shop. I said, Billy, I need you to take over the shop. And he did. Billy's a very personal guy. And uh, we, uh, we corrected the situation. Um, so it was lessons for us, too. Yeah, of course. Now, you went through a period... Uh, where you acquired other firms, what what was the guiding principle? What was your guiding principle with regard to uh, expanding by acquisition? Um, we, we didn't really seek them. Um, they just sort of ended up there. The first one was a customer of ours that went broke. And uh, we first tried to help them through it, and it didn't work. So we bought the company out of bankruptcy, thinking that there it was. A, he bought a lot of the steel that was some of the toughest stuff we got stuck with. Oh, so you uh, want so to we, we thought that would be give us some strength to continue to be able to off false and stuff that we usually took losses on and that we could correct the company. And, and we worked at it for a number of years. Um, uh, part of the reason he failed was because it was a family business um, that competed with other family businesses. And over a period of time, uh, the business became much more controlled by much bigger people. Um, that had much better access to supply. And um, 
Um, we modernized the place, worked very hard at, at trying to make it successful, but it was also used in construction and construction was pretty lousy in the eighties. Uh, so we had customers going broke on us. And we got a lot better. We finally ended up selling the place uh, for about what we paid for it. Uh, didn't get a lot of the money back that we invested, but we learned a lot. And in the meantime, Steel Warehouse did use that operation as an off-fall for things. So Steel Warehouse made some money on it. And uh, that was our first attempt. Uh, our second big acquisition was uh, with a local tubing company. Um, they were... They were actually in the third generation um, of running it themselves. And they had a partnership before that. So they're actually a very old company. Um, and they were one of the first in, in the business of making electric weld tubing. Electric weld tubing is where you take a piece of steel, um, wide coils of steel, and it gets slit down to a specific width and then in a roll forming process, that's, that narrow strip gets bent into a circle. Um, and then you have where you the two ends, sides of the steel come around to meet each other. You throw an arc across there and weld those pieces together. And now you have circular tube. And you can then bend that tube into squares, angles, and, um, and their, their shop um, specialized in very high quality tube uh, that would often get chrome plated for the furnish, fancy furniture industries up in Grand Rapids and different places. They had a long history of doing a good job. Um, but they're a very conservative company. They never really grew a lot. <coughs> and interestingly enough, their father died about the same time my dad died. Wow. And 1975, was it? Yes. And um, there was one son that was in the business, but his father was an old timer and his father didn't let his son immediately jump in and take charge of the business. So was, he didn't have the background. Uh, my dad pushed me to just be able to do everything here. And uh, I didn't know it, but I think he knew it, that I was ready. Right. So a young man, um, he's a bright guy, terrific guy. Um, and he, he also was pretty worried about it. Uh, I used to beat with him and help him. And he pretty well figured it out. He started growing the company, hired a couple old timers to, to help him through what he didn't know and was pretty successful. And then he had a younger brother join him who was a very cocky guy. A sales oriented guy, and all he wanted to do was grow without worrying about it. Um, and they fought a lot. 
and um, the older brother at some point had some marriage problems and he finally just turned the keys over to his younger brother. And um, over a period of time, the younger brother read it into the ground. And um, they were always such a private company, always did what they said they would do. We never really paid too much attention. We always took care of them. We always got them special steel. We basically supplied them about 80 or 90 percent. Were they, were they doing the same kind of uh, production as you or were they a different? Oh, they, they were making a product called. Oh, they were. OK. Electric well tubing. I see. Tubing would went into the frames of hospital beds, uh, uh, chairs. Uh, right. So you wound up owning that business. Yeah. And, and part the story is, I at some point realized how much money they owed us and how much special steel we had. And I decided that my first job is running this company was to try to help run that company back on their feet. And I started going over there, and uh, instead of the owner appreciating it, he, he resented it. And at some point, uh, he let me know that. And then when I realized that 90% of the money he owed was to us, um, that, that uh, I insisted that I try to help so I got to know, uh, very fortunately, I got to know the weaknesses of the company and some of the strengths of the company to determine my own mind, was it worth taking over? Because our banks all recommended against it. And uh, so I had to talk my brothers into it. Um, and I remember um, getting together with all with uh, with my at that time uh, three other brothers that were in the business. And we took a hotel room, some uh, conference room, someplace, and uh, with an outside uh, accountant, went through everything. We spent like eight hours going through with me explaining why I knew damn well this was going to be successful. And in the end, uh, the brothers supported me, and uh, we bought the company in 1992 and uh, made money the second month that we owned the company. And uh, that company, which at that time, when we took over, was in very bad shape. They had, I think, like 30 people in the plant. Um, plants in South Bend now have 250 people, and we have two other locations, one in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and one in Temple, Texas. And uh, they're a pretty good supplier of all kinds of different uh, electric well tubing, and been very successful. It's a well-managed company. I don't oh, did, they, did it roughly double your... Uh... Your volume? Did it? How by how much did it expand the business? Did it double the size of your business? 
know, like 20 times. I mean, they had 30 people. Now they have probably uh, six, 700 people. Um, uh, well, hey, Matt, Matt, what uh, happened? Our overall business. So we meant, did it double our overall? Yeah, yeah. I meant, I meant the, the size of still warehouse. Still warehouse. Well, it depends how far back you want to say. I mean, when when uh, we took over the company in 1967, uh, we had one plant here in South Bend. We probably had 150 guys in the shop. Um, uh, And we probably did uh, 30,000, 40,000 tons a year of steel. Now we do a million and a half. And uh, what, we what's like, We have like 12 locations, including one in Mexico and one in Brazil. We are the major supplier to uh, a number of big name OEMs. Caterpillar, Deer, there's a couple. Um, we're, the, we're the biggest suppliers, I think, to those two companies uh, in steel. Um, um, we, can, we can process steel thicker than anybody in our business, stronger yield steels than anybody in our business. Um, in some cases, it has, it's not been successful economically yet. <laughs> right. But, but it's many of the things well, we've done over the years uh, always started out that way, including many of the operations. Now, yeah. you, you have stepped down as the uh, CEO. What is your position now in the business? I'm the chairman of the board. Uh, and uh, I've never been good at uh, a lot of the formal requirements of the CEO. I've never, I never drew a big chart with boxes of who reports to who and all that other stuff. I figured these guys don't know it. Come and ask me or I'll kick your ass. You ought to know it. So now we have big, big HR department. We have this, we have all this other formalized stuff. And it's good because we're too big to not do it. You know, I was, I was raised by a different approach to running a business. Right. And uh, I still spend a lot of time in the shop with the guys. I know the guys. I know most all the guys here in the first shift, and, um, and I knew their fathers. Uh, and um, I'm, and I actually spend a lot of my time with. Uh, we have a number of engineers who are always trying to figure out something special to do that nobody else can do. And, uh, uh, and I travel a lot. I visit our other plants. I spot issues a little bit faster than a lot of the guys do because I just it just comes naturally to me. Um, well you you had the the engineering background ended up 
working a lot for you, right? Right. I had I had an engineering background, and it was certainly helpful. Uh, and the ice hockey. <laughs> That, that must have been helpful too. <laughs> Absolutely. I, uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, at one point in our daily newspaper, uh, I saw a picture of the new CEO of U.S. Steel in 2004. His name was John Surma, and the picture had him in a hockey outfit. He had played college hockey. He'd just been maybe a year earlier named the new CEO of U.S. Steel in their heyday. And they had bought a steel mill uh, in Slovakia, uh, where a lot of the, of course, actually all over the world in years earlier, the governments owned their steel mills. Uh, uh, the democracies gave up on that because they quit trying to run businesses that they couldn't run well. Uh, but the but the uh, Eastern Bloc still had a lot of those. And once they achieved freedom, they also kind of got out of owning their steel mills. And U.S. Steel bought this. Actually, it was a pretty decent steel mill in, in Slovakia. And um, it was in a small town um, where the uh, number one social relationship for everybody in town was a, a local hockey team. And uh, this guy was still is, but he's not, he's, not, he's retired, but. Amazingly, a uh, very, very bright, high-end guy who also had a sense for people. And uh, he went over to Slovakia and played hockey with the local hockey team. <laughs> and, uh, and U.S. Steel made a little donation to improve the rink, and he became a folk hero there. So I see this picture. Um, I didn't know all that background. All I knew was that he obviously was a hockey player. So I wrote him a letter and I said, uh, although in a much smaller way, I may be the only other CEO in the steel business that seems to share his love for hockey. Uh, most of the big shots in our business all want to play that wimpy game called golf. And uh, uh, I think that's a big mistake. As tough as our business is, we need to have more guys that are ready to knock somebody on their ass than go around walking around with a golf stick. And, um, and then I got a call from him. He was, uh, besides running that empire at Pittsburgh, he was coaching his kids when he could in youth hockey. And he started talking to me and his kids that actually played a team from South Bend. And we had started a nice rink here. And everything he was going through with coaching his kids, I'd coached all my kids. 
So we ended up with a very nice, close relationship that uh, made us, I, I'd like to think, help both of us do more business together. Very nice. That's a great story to end with. Yeah, I think, Dave, we could go on uh, all night. And maybe we will have you back for a second uh, episode. But you've given us uh, some great lessons. And uh, I'm sure that not only uh, our viewers and people that follow the podcast will enjoy it, but I think the family will too. Maybe even the Bodie family will. Well, yes. But I was thinking when you have your annual get together, you can play, we can the, play, our, uh, play the interview. <laughs> right. Most of the people have heard the stories. <laughs> <laughs> not in detail. Not in detail. Well, thanks and, so and much, so, Dave. In, the, in our families, are a whole new generation that's coming up. So Yeah, yeah they don't know. Right. They they may not know. Maybe by then I won't remember what the heck I said. <laughs> that's why we're interviewing you now. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, Dave, thanks, thanks so much. We're gonna let okay. you, we're gonna let you go, and it's been it's been a lot of fun. And uh, as I say, we'll we'll have to get back. We we sign off with Zygazunt. <laughs> thanks. Nice to meet you. Nice to All meet. Right. You. See you later. Bye. Bye.